This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Helis Feruza, the CFO for Meritage Homes, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 609. It's really easy, I think, for us to think about uh, just how do I get through the next 12 months? Uh, but we have to do more than that. So don't just say, phew, we survived it. Let's go back to how it used to be. And the organizations that are going to, I think, thrive post-COVID are going to be those that learn from the, the lessons of going through these past few months. None of us would have wanted this situation to come up the way it has, but there's things that it's given us insight into that we have to not let get wasted as we, as we make our way through this. So. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to CFO Matt Ellis of Verizon. That's right, Verizon, ranked 43 among the Fortune 500. Matt was named CFO and Executive Vice President in 2016 after joining Verizon from Tyson Foods back in 2013. Now, we do not talk to Matt about earnings or profit margins or stock performance. You know us better than that. You'll find that discussion on their recent conference call with analysts. Instead, we talk to Matt about how he's extending his lines of sight into the Verizon organization. And we talked about his career and about Verizon's response to the pandemic and how scenario planning is helping Verizon expose the path ahead. We touch on all this and more when CFO Matt Ellis joins us after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking with Matt Ellis, CFO of Verizon. Matt, welcome. Good to be with you today, Jack. Thank you. Matt, it's great to have you with us, and uh, thank you for uh, accepting our invite. Uh, we begin, always begin with this question, which is to ask you to look back for us and share with us some of those experiences you feel prepared you for a CFO role. What, what come to mind? Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's a great question, and uh, 
you know, as, as I think about that and get asked about it, you, you realize as you look back over your career that it's been, it's not one thing. Um, there's just so many small experiences that when you add them all up, um, you, you realize that uh, uh, they help uh, prepare you for the job you're in today or whatever. So, uh, you know, as I look back on those things, uh, uh, you know, some of them, and the, the first one's kind of interesting because this goes back even pre-going to university. Working in a uh, in a supermarket as a seventeen year old, eighteen year old on a Friday evening and Saturday, and uh, uh, a number of Saturdays I'll be running the fish counter. And uh, um, you know, one day the uh, the store manager came up and said, "Look, there's some some shelves just the other side of the counter. Could you, while you're cleaning up the the counter, could you get these uh, these shelves cleaned as well?" And I said, "Sure." Uh, and I just went about my business and do, 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 do. And, you know, before you know it, we're, we're closing the store and, uh, we're getting ready to wrap stuff up. And I realized I haven't done this. And, you know, he comes around and says, um, doesn't look like you've cleaned those shelves. And I was like, ah, oh, dang. Right. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and, and he, he, he taught me two lessons. One was he said, I'm not disappointed that you didn't get it done. I know uh that you were busy with your normal stuff what disappointed me was if you told me that you didn't think you could be able to get it done i could have i could have arranged to have somebody else have done it but now it's you know five minutes before everyone's about to leave the store and you've not given me the time and the ability to adjust um and uh, then the second piece was the way he had that conversation that he didn't raise his voice he didn't get all excited um and he just used a very calm tone, but he said, I'm disappointed. So it, it didn't even give me the opportunity to go, oh, that guy, he's just getting angry. It was like, it really, and obviously I still remember it 30 plus years on. So um, uh, it, it had an effect. So it taught me kind of two things. One, um, the value of communicating bad news as early as possible. Um, so that, uh, you know, and I know now in the role I'm in now, while certainly I don't like getting bad news, right? That's never something any of us volunteer for it's going to happen right it's the nature of the jobs we do things don't go right all the time but if people communicate early enough to you you can do something about it you've got time to pivot or, or and, and and address it right if um if someone tells you um that there's a problem two seconds before you get hit with the problem it's like okay that's not a lot of help right so that was the first lesson the second one was just the way he gave feedback and that uh you know, ranting and raving and so on is, is not necessarily the way to get through to people. And uh, so, you know, that was one of the earliest lessons and it still sticks with me today, both of those things. Um, it kind of a, a second uh, experience. I, after I, I finished university in England, I uh, joined uh, what was then called Coopers and Live Round, now the, the C in PWC. And uh, I spent uh, the early part of my career in, in, in audit. And one of the great things about that is you go on different audit assignments of six weeks, eight weeks, whatever, and you get to work for a different supervisor, a different audit manager on each of these roles. So in these formative years of, of my career, I got exposed to different leadership styles rather than just working for the same person for two, three years. And I got to see a number of styles that I liked, and I thought I want to copy those when I become the, the person in charge. And I saw a lot of styles that... I, I, I didn't like, and one of those really stuck with me. I, was, I remember being on an audit where I could see over the first two or three weeks that we weren't really making the progress that we needed to. Um, and the, the audit supervisor really wasn't managing the logistics of it here. And you could see that what was going to come along was 
a massive rush at the end, um, you know, working really late, all the rest of it. Um, and so that taught me that, you know, if it's okay to do something that affects you negatively. That's all of our own choices to make. But when you're a leader and you, you essentially don't plan things, don't run things the right way, it's not just you that gets negative con negatively uh, consequenced by it. It's, it's, it's the people on your team. You know, so I decided, you know, when I was in going to be in those types of positions, I wanted to make sure that uh, my lack of managing appropriately didn't have a negative consequence on the on the people who work for me. Um, and uh, then a, a third one, uh, as I went into a leadership role um, prior to being at Verizon, I was at, uh, at Tyson Foods and uh, I, I went down to Mexico, not in a finance role, but actually to run the operation down there. I remember I'd been down there a couple of weeks and we were sitting in a we were sitting in a meeting with my staff team. And typically when there's a, an issue for us to resolve, one of the ways I work through that is I like to ask questions. And if you've got the right people in the room and you ask the right questions, you'll often get to the, the right, uh, you know, the answer that's going to be the, the best for the situation. So I'd asked a few questions and the conversation was going back and forth between different people in the room. And after a few minutes, all of us, you know, the, the conversation stopped and all of them, there's about 10 people in the room. They, they all looked at me about the same time. And I was like, why are they all looking at me? And then I had one of those cartoon character light bulb moments go off. And it's like, you're in charge and they expect you to know the answer or to make the decision. <laughs> and it was that uh, uh, that realization that uh, uh, you may not have all the information, uh, but in a leadership position, there's going to be times when after you've asked all the questions, you've got as much information as possible. Um, you're the one who's going to have to make a decision about how the group goes forward. And uh, um, that was uh, that, that was a big realization right there. And then as uh, um, as I went into that role, that when, when, when you're the one in charge, ultimately, if the answer is not obvious to everyone else, you're the one who's going to be uh, making the decision, even if you don't feel that you have any better uh, information than any of the other folks in the room. So, you know, number, as I say, there's been so many experiences over my career that, uh, that, that get you ready for a job like this. Um, but it's amazing the ones that really stick with me are the ones that have been, I mean, all of those uh, uh, that I mentioned are over 15 years old now. The oldest one are much more than that. Um, but they, um, you know, just the fact that I still remember them today tells you how impactful they are on, on me and, and uh, some of the things that uh, I've learned along the way that uh, uh, have helped me you know, get to this point. Just looking at your bio, there are a couple of things I, I just wanted to run by you, which I thought the variety of industries is quite interesting to me. Um, was your first corporate job uh, outside uh, Cooper's at Dixon's Retail? Was that, that was an accounting role? And was that the first uh, uh, corporate job? Yep. And and what, what I was curious about there, so they're not unlike a lot of uh, PwC auditors or, or what have you, they'll step into the corporate environment at, in an accounting capacity. You get, uh, do you get recruited by Tyson's out of the UK? Is that immediately uh, an international job where you go stateside? Yeah, no, I was, uh, you know, so I went to school in the UK and was uh, working at Cooper's and Librand in London and I joined Dixon Stores Group. Um, which, which, by the way, is the largest uh, consumer electronics retailer, one of them in Europe.
yeah, think like the UK equivalent of Best Buy or something, right? If you if you think of it that way. Um, and um, so I'd been there about a year, and actually my wife had the opportunity to uh, through her job to move to the US, and we said we'd give that a try for a couple of years, and that's now 23 years ago. So um, um, and uh, you know I I I, uh, I got the job at Tyson Foods when we came over, but uh, you mentioned the transition from. Uh, being in public accounting, and then I went to work for Dixon Stores Group first, which is in the retail trade. It, it, it was it was a huge transition as well because you go from in the public accounting, you plan the work, you come in each day, and you know, okay, which part of the audit do I expect to get done today? And you know, if you have a successful day, you knock those things off the list, and then tomorrow you've got the next piece of work to do. And I moved into this retail environment. And it took me a couple of months to get used to the fact of how fast paced it was, how things could change on you every single day. And, you you know, you couldn't come in first thing in the morning, have your list of things you're going to do, um, because invariably stuff would come up in the business. And um, that was a significant adjustment just in work style. Uh, and it's the nature of the business. It's retail. Uh, things move fast. And, uh, you know, that was uh, that was a big pivot. Also at Tyson's is where uh, it, you, you move over to the treasury side, or, or right. clearly you get that experience. Right. I'm curious, was that, uh, did that take some doing? Did you have to, how did you, how were you able to break through and get that treasury experience? Which, by the way, you land at Verizon as their treasurer and SVP. So it was an important role for you, clearly, in your career. What would you tell us? Absolutely. Yeah, so you know, when I was, uh, I did a number of different finance roles at Tyson. I was, I was lucky enough to uh, uh, have had uh, some leaders there who gave me the opportunity to do different things. Um, and I'd, I'd always had the, the the curiosity about learning different parts of the the finance organization, and and I, I liked the parts that were more forward looking. So whether that be uh, some of the FP&A roles where you're working alongside a business and not just saying what happened, but what are our plans and what we're going to do next. Um, did, uh, you know, work in uh, corporate finance, corporate development. We did some, some M&A transactions and, again, work in those. And then treasury, which, again, to, you know, you're planning, okay, the balance sheet today is what it is. You can't change the, the past that got you to this balance sheet. But now it's how do I manage it forward based off how the uh, – uh, the environment. So I had the chance to, when I was in in, in uh, the corporate finance role, to work with some of our banking partners uh, as we uh, as we worked on some M and A deals, and then the treasurer position came open, uh, and uh, my boss uh, gave me the opportunity to to move into that role. Uh, and uh, it was one of those good things, bad things. That you know, he, he had been the treasurer before, so he was able to uh, you know help me with that transition personally. Um, but it also meant I had a boss who knew exactly how to do the job I was doing, which uh, meant there's uh, you, you know there's no hiding uh, in, in the answers. So um, it was, uh, but it, he was very helpful. Uh, I had some a lot of those relationships with our key banking partners, which uh, helped me with that transition and. Uh, kind of went from there and I think anytime you go into a new role like that it's just around um, wanting to learn wanting to understand the role how do things work in that function and if you kind of drilling like that I, I like to think of having a you know reasonable degree of, of uh, curiosity about how you know understanding how the, the different parts of something come together and 
Um, and I think that's allowed me to adapt to different roles. And as you say, I moved from treasurer there to then treasurer at Verizon. Our next question is usually we ask uh, for the finance leader to, you know, tell us about this business. And I thought I'd ask it a little differently. We all believe we know Verizon. Verizon today, uh, 2019 revenue is $132 billion, uh, and it has uh, 136,000 employees last year. We all believe we, we know Verizon. There's some part of this business which most likely touches us. In fact, I think you have 99% of the Fortune 500 as customers. Um, at the same time, what, what is generally misunderstood about this business? What, what, what surprises you as you educate people, and, and you, whether it's the analysts or all the stakeholders that you educate, what, what is generally misunderstood as you as the finance leader, you, you, you tell yourself, you know, I spend an awful lot of time explaining this to people. What would that be exactly? Yeah, you know, it's, it's um, the constant uh, maintenance of the network and the adding capacity to the network and so on to service that is just uh, a, a level of work that's um, uh, that they, they are truly uh, uh, world-class in what they do. And as consumers, we see the result of that. And sometimes, you know, I, I take for granted uh, how reliable the service is, but uh, it doesn't happen by accident. And uh, you have to kind of see it every day to realize all of the work that goes into into making that happen. And it's just one of those things, because it, because it works so well, you kind of don't think about it. But so when you get a chance to see it up close, it's pretty phenomenal. And we, we spend a good amount of time, um, you know, talking to investors about, uh, you know, the things that go on there and what separates our network quality versus some others. You, you have to educate so many people about what numbers matter most and what doesn't matter. And so I guess I'm trying to ask, what are your peers surprised to learn about your priorities what, or, or your day or what you don't do? What I don't want to spend my time doing. Can I ask that question? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I've, I've really tried to uh, develop over the years is, is do the things that I need to do and, um, you know, not do the things that there are other people who can do. And I think it's one of the things I know, one of the challenges I had the first time I was in a supervisory role. So, you know, all of us start off as individual contributors and we do a good job at that thing. And then somebody decides that they see some potential in us and they promote us. Um, and, you know, I, I actually think that hardest step in, in, in development, and I see this time and time again with people, is that first time you become a supervisor. And I know the challenge for me was, you know, you get promoted because you were good at doing something, whatever your profession is, right? Obviously, in, in, for me, that was finance-related work. And so you get promoted to then be a manager over other people. And this management thing at first is like, it's a bit squishy and different, right? And, um, and so there's this security blanket nature of, well, some of that work I used to do, I like still doing that because I was good at it. And because I'm good at it, I do it well, and I, you know, it makes me feel good. And the, the aha moment for me was, I think I had like four people working for me in, in the first role where I was really supervising people. And I had the aha moment that said, as a group, we're going to get a lot more done if you spend your time helping them get do their work as, to the best of their ability than if I'm, you know, I spend half my time stuck in my office trying to, you know, do some of the work just myself and I'm not there to help them. Um, and so, you know, that letting go of the things you were good at in the prior role when you then get promoted up to the next level up 
I know it was a challenge for me and I think it's a challenge for others. And that still applies as I get up to into this role. And I was fortunate enough to my, my predecessor at CFO here at, uh, at Verizon. Um, he was a great role model at this of not being in my business every day when I was treasurer or whatever working for him. Uh, he said, look, you, you know what you're doing. I trust you. Go get it done. He said, if I have to, if I'm having to spend too much time with you, there's a different problem, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, so that, that was really good learning. And, it, and I also liked it because it gave me the freedom to actually run that part of the business the, the way it needed to. Uh, and I'm fortunate enough in, in the role now that I have a lot of great um, leaders underneath me in the various finance functions. And they don't need me kind of checking in on everything on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So th that allows me to say, let me spend my time on the things that do matter. How do I spend my time working on the larger projects that aren't just going to mean we keep moving the business forward today, but we're where we want to be three years from now, five years from now? What are the things in the finance department that we need to be focused on that's not just doing the day-to-day -day stuff, but we're moving ourselves forward such that we're the finance department that we want to be three years from now, five years from now, because you're only going to be in those places out in the future if you're taking the right steps today. Right. So the business to a large degree, especially a business like ours, um, the day to day work that needs to be done, whether that's the day to day running the network, the day to day selling uh, service to customers, the work we do in finance, keeping the books, um, you know, managing cash, doing tax returns, whatnot. That stuff is going to happen without me being needing to be involved. So what do I do is make sure that we have we are also working on the other things that mean we're not going to get left behind um, as uh, the world around us moves forward here and our competitors continue to do new things and so on. So I do those things. Um, the communication uh, within whether it be the staff within the finance group elsewhere or to investors. Um, and, you know, they want we have a great investor relation department, but they also want to hear from the CFO um as well and uh you know so i spend time doing that and you know it's i can say exactly the same thing our ir department does in fact it's often what i am saying is the same thing they hear from that but the fact that they get to hear from me and they can say that's the same message i'm hearing from the ir department this team has got a coherent message uh and when the ir uh, team's talking to me they are in fact sharing a message that's shared by the cfo and ceo and they're all aligned adds value and nobody else can bring that to the table. The person in this seat has to do some of that work. So it's identifying those jobs that uh, where you make a difference and uh, not uh, the things that you just get some level of comfort at doing because you're, you're good at doing it. Right. And um, I really enjoy doing financial analysis and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, I've not done a complicated spreadsheet in years um because we've got other people who can do that so i have to make sure that i spend my time in the places where uh other people can't do and and you know one of the things i get to do in my role especially a company the size of verizon is you get to connect the dots across the organization you know people who may not connect with each other um but they really need to is I get to bring th that person that brings those different things together so that one plus one, it becomes something more than more than two. Um, and so that, that, that's been one of the key things for me is learning where to spend my time uh, and, and to get out of the way of my, you, when you, if you've got great people working for you and they know what they're doing, um, you know, give them the respect to, to, to be available when they need you, 
but apart from that, you know, let them do their jobs and uh, uh, as well. And so, you know, that's that's uh, that's a big piece of it. But it's finding those things where only I, you know, only the person in my seat can do, and make sure I'm spending time there. What you just described, where you help the organization connect the dots by bringing people together. Uh, this is very often what we hear from different finance leaders in regards to uh, identifying maybe a certain measurement or a metric that they realize part of the organization needs to see more often or understand the ramifications about it. Is there something that comes to mind if I was to ask you for a metric that you had to bring to the surface, that you had to bring to the attention of a bigger part of the organization or maybe to the board? Maybe you had to go in there and say, this metric shouldn't be something we talk about once a year. It's something we should be talking about more frequently. Something like that. That's what you know. I know our audience would find of interest. Yeah, well, that 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 that's a great question. And in, you know, related to that, in addition to connecting the dots, the other piece is, um, you know, you you get to ask the questions that people wish you wouldn't ask in this role as well. Uh, and it's not that they're doing bad things. It's just you know the 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 questions you get to roll in this asking this role are the the hard questions and the ones that aren't easy to get answers to. Um, but it's important that those questions get asked within the organization. So, um, you know, one of the things we've been spending time on um, and uh, continue to do so is to really try to, to, to create uh, an increased level of understanding of the relationship between, uh, the, you know, what drives revenue and what drives cost and how much of the cost is fixed versus variable. And, you know, over the last couple of years, we've, we've deployed a zero-based budgeting technique where you, you, you look at the cost line and try and pull it apart between what's the, what's the, the rate and the drive of the P times Q, as it's often called. Um, and that really forced us to, uh, as the different teams looked at the different parts of the business, to think about our spending in a different way. Um, and... Um, you know, we're not a, a finished product on that by any means, but really trying to continue to provide more transparency on what drives cost, uh, what causes cost to happen. And as you do that, um, you know, some uh, unexpected things fall out. People say, I didn't realize we we did this. Uh, and, 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 and then very quickly, people go about uh, doing the things they should then do to, to make that thing better. So part of it is, 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 is asking the questions and getting people to look at something, uh, something in, a, in, in, in a different way. Um, and uh, when you get to do that, you, know, you just look at the same thing, but from a different lens, and uh, it gives you a different view on the business. So that's what we've been doing, spending some time over the past couple of years on, is just trying to dig in and better understand what drives the cost side of our business. Uh, well, that's exactly the type of insight we're looking for. So thank you for that. want to touch on COVID with you. Clearly, uh, Verizon has a pretty uh, thought out uh, response uh, to this new environment where we've been operating in. Can, can you share with us some of what uh, Verizon's undertaken in this environment to respond to its employees and its different stakeholders? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the fact you use the word stakeholder because uh, one of the things that we think about our business, um, we really do kind of think about a, a stakeholder model. And we think about four stakeholders, employees, customers, shareholders and society. And, and having that, you know, the, thinking about the business that way and those stakeholders really helped us 
as we went through this. So from an employee standpoint, the first thing we did in, in that mid-March time period, once we realized the challenge that we had, uh, and I'm going to speak predominantly about our U.S. Uh, business because that's where most of our employees are, although this applied in other locations as well. Uh, so the first thing to do was to get our employees um, into a safe place, which for the vast majority of us was home. Um, and, uh, you know, we've out of 135,000 employees, we have approximately 115,000 now working from home or somewhere which is not their normal place of uh, the place they show up to work every day. Uh, and that happened like in the space of a week. Um, and, you know, you take the finance team as an example. So mid-March, we all of a sudden send everyone home. Um, and you know, you're right on top of quarter end. And we did our first quarter closing the books in early April, getting ready for earnings release and everything. Every, every step of that process happened on time, even though nobody was in the office together. Uh, and we uh, actually uh, you know, got a couple of things done even sooner than we expected. So it was just a tremendous uh, response by the team. But the first thing to do was to get people out of the office because we obviously social distancing became critically important. The second thing with employees was to communicate, to tell people what was going on. The reason we had the some of the good outcomes, like I mentioned, we're getting the books closed on time and whatnot, is we took a lot of the uncertainty away. So every day at noon, we have a webcast with our employees and our CEO and our chief H HR officer would be on there and say, here's what's going on. And so even though we were all now dispersed in our homes everywhere and not seeing each other face to face, we had this mechanism where people could still feel connected, still feel part of the company culture and also know what's going on. So we very quickly you know, told people when they should think about being out of the office. We told them what we're thinking about in terms of next steps, because a large part of the thing that, that causes people to slow down and not get things done is uncertainty. So we, 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 we went out of our way to. Uh, to communicate a lot more than we would in a BAU mode. And, and that's really shown up, I think, in how the team has responded. Uh, second stakeholder I mentioned was customers. And uh, so one of the first things we did, we, uh, we signed on to the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission, pledged that uh, uh, initially it was 60 days. We extended it through the end of, uh, end of the second quarter that we would, for any customer, a consumer or small business, whose ability to pay their bill had been impaired as a result of, of coronavirus, uh, we wouldn't cut off their service and we wouldn't charge them late fees. Um, and, you know, so that was immediately well uh, received by our customers. Additionally, we still have a lot of customers, although we have unlimited wireless plans, we have a lot of customers who are still on, on, on a plan that's got a fixed amount of data. And, you know, that's normally fine. But then you're working from home, your kids are studying from home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there's a concern about, am I going to go over those data caps and I'm going to incur large overages when I've also got other financial considerations? And so we added a large amount of data to uh, uh, to customers' um, uh, buckets there so that they wouldn't worry about going through their normal cap. Uh, and then from an entertainment side, we, uh, you know, on our, our Fios linear TV offering uh, in, in the Northeast, um, we, uh, we had a, a more at home on us where we provided some additional content that's not we'd normally charge for, but made it available free of charge to our customers. So you do those things for your customers. And then from a society standpoint, we've um, 
you know, we've made uh, commitments and contributions to a number of different organizations as they have done tremendous things as a result of this. We've uh, we've contributed through our foundation over $55 million uh, so far uh, around COVID. And then more specifically, we did a series, we called it Pay It Forward Live, uh, a couple of times a week with uh, either a music uh, artist or a, or a video gaming. Um, and uh, we'd use that as a, a way to talk about small businesses and, and the importance of small businesses. And we contributed money and other money came in. And we, um, we, we, we made, uh, we've distributed over seven and a half million dollars of donations to small businesses as a result of that. And, uh, you know, so as you think about the, you know, we, we, we thought about our response in terms of those stakeholders come back to the beginning. What do we need to do for our employees? Number one, they have to be safe and then tell them what's going on taking care of our customers because the value of what we have with our customers is not transactional. It's the length of the relationship we have uh, with our customers. And so in a time like this where our customers needed us show up for them and then also contribute to society more broadly. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's wonderful to be part of an organization that is able to be able to react in that way. Now, are you doing at the moment uh, as uh, scenario planning part of, uh, I would imagine, uh, uh, your forecasting as you look forward in terms of uh, the economic recovery for other businesses and their spending habits? Yep. Um, is there a plan A, B, C, scenario A, B, C, or how, how would can yeah. you give us some sense of how your approach works? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we've, um, we've like so many companies, we've talked about scenario planning uh for quite a while and it's one of those things that as you think about it you read about it and so on you it'd be great if we could do that uh but for so many businesses just getting the the base plan built is a huge effort you know the idea of producing multiple versions of the plan um is um you know not not immediately met with uh, a, a lot of smiley faces from the finance organization right so um you know it's i would say like a lot of companies we've not been uh, great at scenario planning. But you come into a situation like this, and one of the first things you realize is, unlike most years where you, you do your budget for the year or whatever, and you come to a point of view of what the operating environment is going to be like, and you may be off a little bit, but the, the how much you may be off by, for most businesses, it may not be that big a, big a deal, right? So, um, But you, if you come into this, and you're sitting there in late March, early April, and you're saying, what is the operating environment going to look like over the next six to 12 months? And the range of possible outcomes that you're, you're starting to think about is, 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 is wider than any of us have ever dealt with. So rather than trying to pick and say, okay, what do we think the environment's going to be? Let's model that. We say that, that's, a, that's a fool's error in trying to predict it. We say, okay, so this is when we're going to do scenario planning. So we, we, we put together uh, kind of three different cases as we thought about the, ma the, the at the macroeconomic level, what we thought, you know, how the virus could play out, what that would mean for the economy, what that would mean for unemployment, and then think through what does that therefore mean for um, the volumes we'd see in our business and how does that play through. And so it's uh, it's been a little bit of an iterative process, uh, but we're happy with the way that's worked out and it's given us a sense of, you know, we still don't know exactly how that that big macro picture is going to play out. But depending on how it plays out in this scenario, I'd, I'd probably do this set of actions. But in a, in scenario B, I might to do a, need to do a completely different set of actions. And it gives you that chance to 
to think about what those actions would be in each scenario rather than you know immediately having to do it on the fly when you find you're in any of those so it's it's been actually a, a, a good exercise for us as a group uh, to really get our teeth into uh, thinking about scenario planning in a way that we hadn't until now can I when you uh, deployed your let's just call it the uh the team that that explored the the scenarios with you is that uh, purely a finance exercise or is that uh do you have other uh outsiders who are part uh, when you considered the response and what was might be required for the business um yeah who might be on that team yeah so primarily uh the 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 corporate uh, fpna team was kind of the the group we 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 initially put that together with we um we 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 ran some of our scenarios by some other parts of the business some of the business leaders um and then we got to kind of uh pressure test the um the assumptions in the scenarios against some external uh third parties whether it be consultants banks whatever and to see what you know what what are what are you thinking the, the range of outcomes might be uh just to make sure we weren't uh so so getting a third party view you know in, in it didn't change a lot of the assumptions we did but it gave us a a sounding board to make sure that we 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 hadn't missed something um you know uh, significant as we thought about it so it was uh, it was valuable to do that and um and you know this especially in this scenario we've we've all been through recessions none of us have been through a recession that happened like this one and uh, uh and so you know i think that's when you open your lens of who you listen to and who you bounce ideas off um because uh you know you you want to get exposed to that wider uh, set of views in a in an environment like this um just given the nature of it. All right, um, we're gonna jump to uh, what we refer to as our uh, finance strategic moment question. And uh, Matt, this could have been, you shared a few uh, strategic moments with us already, but this could have been any time during the course of your career where your lines of sight into the organization allowed you to see an opportunity or a risk and you responded to it. Now, clearly there are hundreds of these, but has anything come to mind when you, you think back and, uh, you know, there was something that you saw and as a finance executive, were able to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing I, I would say is that uh, uh, anytime I've been you know, successful in my career, it's been uh, typically as a result of working together with a great team. So uh, any of the good outcomes that we have had have typically been when uh, it's been working as part of a great group. And, uh, um, you know, so th this this example would be one of those. Um, you know, when I was at, uh, at Tyson Foods, had a, had a, a great career there. Um, you know, it's, it's a business where the, uh, the margins are pretty, pretty, uh, thin. Uh, and like a lot of companies that, whose margins, uh, aren't that large, you, 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 the, the focus on cost and the understanding of everything at a very low level of detail is incredibly good. And, um, as a result of that, we would, uh, you know, cost every single product uh coming out of the uh uh out of the facility and uh, at the at the nth degree um and so you know that's good that's helpful but one of the things that we we looked at is we said you know are we missing when you bring it back up to a bigger picture it's good to you know all the minute detail into but does it add up to the right result or not and we did some work that that, that had us take a more holistic view at what was going through uh, a processing plant rather than the individual product coming out adding it back up and saying but 
you know, uh, because typically there wasn't a person responsible for the totality. People were responsible for different bits. And as you added that back up, uh, it gave us a slightly different view and it made the company uh, as a result think a little differently about how we manage some of those things. Um, and one of the key learnings was, you know, that, that phrase, what gets measured uh, is what gets managed is, is, is so much truth to it. And we were managing everything at the really detailed line, which is important. But we weren't necessarily looking at it at the totality uh, in, in, in the way that uh, we could have done. And by taking that different lens, um, it led to uh, not just the finance team, but the people running those businesses uh, having a different view of those businesses and, may, and ultimately making some different decisions about them. So, um, you know, it was, it was two, two real things. It was it was important to me. One, it it, uh, it reinforced that thing about the importance of knowing what you're measuring. Because if you measure the wrong thing, you will get the wrong result. The other piece that was important to me was that it was a, it was a proof point that, that finance uh, doesn't just have to be the scorekeeper, the person that issues the reports, whatever. Um, you know, we understand numbers, that the financial numbers that come out of the, the general ledger and the reporting systems and so on in a much better way than than. Um, the people in other uh, parts of the business, whether it be production, sales, marketing, whatever, they can all do things else as finance people can't do that well. But we understand those numbers well. And if we do our jobs really well, we're not just reporting to them what happened. We can also give them a view into how the business operates and there may be an opportunity to get a better financial outcome. And so that that was, uh, as you say, one of those finance strategic moments uh, in your career where you, you get that proof point that says, you know, the, the finance teams that are doing value added work are those who are providing not just reports, but insights into the business that others aren't necessarily seeing. And there can be tremendous value add as a result of doing that. When we return, CFO Matt Ellis enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Uh, we're going to uh, jump quickly to our mentoring round where uh, we begin with this question. It wasn't all that long ago uh, that you stepped into the CFO office. I guess it was 2020 for the first time, uh, 2015, yeah. 2016. Yeah. Um, and you described for us already. So you sort of had the, the previous CFO who you collaborated with for a, a period of years, two or three years there, and then you step into the role. Um, what is that piece of advice? If you could go back to your first quarter in that role, what is that piece of advice you'd give yourself? What would you whisper in your ear? What do you wish someone had told you? What would that be? You know, it, it was, uh, it, it was a, a great time. Uh, I had worked for, um, 
you know, really closely with the CFO, whether it be my predecessor at Verizon or the the CFO at uh, at Tyson when I was there before I changed companies. For so I'd worked directly with the CFO for the best part of ten years, and uh, thought I had a really good level of view in to, in terms of the job, and and I did for about fifty percent of it. But it's the um, it's those interactions with other members of the the senior leadership team, the CEO, and some of those other people that, um, that you know the one-on-one communications, not the group meetings where I may have been in those meetings before with the CFO and and some of those other folks, but no, just those one-on-one meetings that you have with other members of the C-suite, the interactions with the board, uh, some of the external meetings. I, I had um, as treasurer, I'd communicated to investors. Um, and so, you know, I'd go on my first investor meeting as C- CFO and thought, I've done, I've done investor meetings before. They have a different expectation of what they're going to ask this, ask you as CFO, right, than what they asked you as, as treasurer or, or, or one of the other roles that may have been out there. So, you know, it was interesting, even though I'd been around the role for about, as I say, about 10 years. Uh, it's also one of those roles until you actually get into the seat, you're not ne- – there's some part of it you cannot prepare for without just doing the job. Um, and, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough that there wasn't something, you know, a lot of people come into a CFO role and they got the job because something was broken and the, the previous CFO was no longer there. Um, so you immediately have something to fix or the company's got a problem and you're immediately trying to fix something there. I didn't have that issue. I had, a, you know, I inherited a, a good team and we've, we've moved, you know, made some few um, changes and so on over the three and a half years, but there wasn't a, an immediate burning platform that had to be fixed. Uh, so I had the chance to come in and, uh, um, and really get my, get my legs underneath me in the role before uh, doing any major changes. But uh, yeah, I, it's just, it's one of those roles that no matter how closely you've seen it, I don't think you can really truly appreciate it uh, until you're actually in the seat and then, uh, yeah. Just uh, get in, learn as quickly as you can, and hold on tight. Wanted wanted to ask. We always ask uh, our guests to share a little bit on the, I guess, the personal side. If there's a habit or a daily routine that they have that they've done over the years that they believe has kept them on an even keel, has allowed them to succeed uh, professionally, even something you do in your your personal side. Yeah, yeah. This might this might sound a bit uh, a bit. Uh, uh, uh boring but uh I, I hate not feeling like i'm in control of uh my day my to-do list and the things i've got to get done and so on and so one of the things i've always uh tried to do and, and vast majority of days is happens is to get in 30 to 60 days minutes before the um you know the, the day really gets up and going and the office starts getting busy with people and you get the drive-bys or you have your, your meeting schedules or whatever. So I've, I've always found if I can get in a little bit earlier, you have time to go get a cup of coffee, sit down, see what uh, what's in the inbox, uh, you know, double check what's uh, on the agenda for the day, what you've got coming up over the next few weeks, what are the projects that you, you want to make progress on today. And then by, you know, 8 o'clock, whatever time, the place starts getting busy and you're still going off to meetings and so on. But it feels like I started a day in control. Whereas those days where I, I walk into the office two minutes before the first meeting, uh, I just feel I'm playing catch up all day long. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's that, that creating that time where you can make sure it's not just the, 
the momentum of the business keeps you busy all day, but you're making sure you're actually getting the things done. And, and I think you have to proactively do that. You have to say, you know, that won't happen by itself. So for me, it's that creating a little bit of time in the morning where I can say, okay, how do, I'm going to stay in control of my calendar here and my, my to-do and, and, and therefore, uh, and that's something I've done for, for a long time now. Uh, and at various different levels, it's really helped me just make sure we don't just get the, the day-to-day stuff done um, because it's so easy in, in all these roles that you work really, really hard. And, you know, a year from now, you look up and you look back a year and you say, we're doing everything exactly the same way. Uh, and of course, that's not the way to be successful because your competitors probably aren't. Um, and even if they're not, you've missed some opportunities on the way. So you've got to be mindful about driving not just a BAU, but the the, the changes that you want to, to happen. And that's that's been a big part of me is just getting in a little earlier. Is there, is there a book you'd recommend? Uh, it doesn't have to be a business book, something uh, that would reveal something about yourself. Oh, boy. And- yeah, sorry to put you on the that's spot. That's all right. There. That's a good question. You know, like uh, and and uh, um, you know, I don't read as many books as some folks, uh, but uh, you know, a couple of them have stuck with me over the years. Um, and one of them is just it's it's uh, uh, the first book, and in the series of books that have actually pretty simple premises, um, but they've stuck with me as I've developed as a leader and thought about stuff. Which was the One Minute Manager. And the series of books that came along uh, after that was Spencer Johnson and Ken Blanchard. And uh, I think there's just a, a, a lot of good learnings in there about how to be a, um, you know, how to be a manager, how to be a leader. Um, and uh, they've, a lot of those principles have stood the test of time. Uh, the other one that comes to mind uh, that, that, that uh, uh, made an impression on me was uh, Clayton Christensen's innovation, Innovator's Dilemma and then Innovator's Solution. And, uh, you know, the idea and the Innovator's Dilemma that at really well-managed companies can actually stifle innovation from happening. It's like it's it seems like a, a bit of an oxymoron, but being a well-managed company, you can actually prevent good things from happening. So how do you, uh, you know, in the, in, in the environment of a well-managed organization, create room for new stuff to happen? Uh, and then in the follow-up, how do you make sure as you develop your products and so on, they're not getting so over-engineered that you create space for somebody to come underneath you with a, with a cheaper, uh, less engineered product and kind of take the market out from uh, as you focus on just the... Uh, the upper end of your your customer base. So I would say those two, the one minute manager and then Clayton Christensen's innovators dilemma, innovator solution. Great choice selections for us. We're up to our final question. We ask you to look forward for us, Matt, and share with us your priorities over the next 12 months as you look at your role. What are those priorities? Yeah, and that's a great question in normal times. And uh, sitting here today uh, in the middle of uh, COVID and so on, it's, uh, I think it's an even more important question um, because it's really easy, I think, for us to think about uh, just how do I get through the next 12 months? Uh, but we have to do more than that. So I think in my role, it's about helping the organization um, come through this even stronger than before. And the organizations that are going to, I think, thrive post-COVID are going to be those that learn from the the lessons of of, uh, of going through these past few months uh, in terms of you know how we interact with our employees, our customers, um, you know how you set up the customer experience proposition, 
and then the transformation within the business and driving some of that transformation about how we get things done. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's kind of a focus for me as we go over the next 12 months is that we don't lose some of these lessons. As I mentioned earlier, the, the sheer number of people that we moved to a work from home environment in a matter of seven days, you know, that would have we've just taken five years looking at some of these things, run 10 different studies, decided there were still things we didn't like about it or maybe too risky to make a change and not done half of any of it. And then you get something like this comes along and you say, we've just got to do it. And our business has still run very, very well. So what are the learnings that you get out of that? You don't just say, phew, we survived it. Let's go back to how it used to be. And I think that's, that's a key thing for me over the next 12 months is how do we make sure that uh, the things we've learned and look, none of us would have wanted this situation to come up the way it has. Um, but there's things that it's given us insight into that we have to not let get wasted as we as we make our way through this. So, Matt Ellis, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you for having me. It's been a fun conversation. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.